Today's reading is taken from Acts chapter six, verse eight, to chapter seven, verse two, and again from chapter seven, verse forty-four to chapter eight, verse three. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of synagogue of the freedmen. As it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, "We have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God." So they stirred up the people and elders. And the teachers of the law, they seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced four witnesses, who testified: This fellow never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen. And they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Then the high priest asked Stephen, "Are these charges true?" To this he replied, "Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. Our ancestors had the." The tabernacle of the covenant law with them in the wilderness. It had been made as God directed Moses, according to the pattern he had seen. After receiving the tabernacle, our ancestors and Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nations God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands, as the prophet says, "Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool." What kind of houses were you built for me? Says the Lord, or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears. Are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestor did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You, who have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. When the members of Sanhedrin heard this. They were furious and gnashed their teeth at him, but Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and, yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witness, 
The witnesses laid their coats at the feet of the young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, "Lord Jesus, receive my spirit." Then he fell on his knees and cried out, "Lord, do not hold this sin against them." When he had this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of their killing him. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house. He dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. This is the word of the Lord. Lucy,、um, we are going to go through. We just read parts of、uh, chapter seven, but we are going to go through chapter seven. So, if you have your Bibles,、um, do、uh, have it open in front of you as we go through、um, this text. And、uh, although we didn't have time to read it this morning, it is a great sermon, and I hope、uh, this sermon will,、uh, my sermon, will give you a little bit of an insight into what Stephen said. And if you could take the time and actually go through this text、um, alone, I'm sure you'll get a lot out of it.、Um, But as we come to this text, let's pray that God will speak to us. Lord, we give you great thanks for your Son Jesus and the salvation that is in Him, and we thank you so much for the godly men like Stephen who have given、um, their life for the sake of the gospel, who have testified that that there is a message that is worth dying for. And we pray that you will shape us, that you will speak to us this morning, that we too will be your faithful witnesses in our life and in our death. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. It's the last、um, day of our series in、um, uh, through、uh, Book of Acts, and we are going to take a break and go to Book of Genesis afterwards. But Book of Acts really is about how the gospel grew in the hostile ground of the first century A.D. Even from the very beginning, in the Pentecost, you see people are hostile against the gospel. Satan tries to crush the church and the kingdom of God through outward persecution. Stirring up Sadducees and synagogue rulers against Christians, and that, when that didn't work,、uh, he tries to introduce this,、uh, destroy the church from within, for introducing dishonesty through Ananias and Sapphira, and God put an end to that. And then last week we saw just the difficulties actually of church growing, but through it all the church grew. And today's passage is the last passage of this series, Church in, in Transition, and it ends with Satan's、uh, most sinister plot—the plot, literally, to kill off Christians and the church. And we're introduced to Stephen, the first martyr. But I'm happy to tell you that even though, even as the church sees its first martyr, the kingdom of God grows because the gospel growth is unstoppable, and that is the message of Book of Acts. That as long as we're grounded in, in preaching Christ, in preaching the truth of the Bible and Christ, and as we, as long as there are Christ-like people living here on earth, the gospel can't be stopped. And those are the ingredients of gospel growth. So as we turn to the longest sermon recorded in the Bible, in Book of、uh, Book of Acts,、um, I, I should say that some scholars, as you read through this, some sc- scholars write this sermon off as a long rambling、uh, of unrelated events. 
uh, with an abrupt ending, but they're not reading the text very carefully. And we don't have the time to go through the text in detail, but let me give you an overview here. The key to understanding the text is to understand what the accusations are, what Stephen is being accused of, and they're found in chapter, uh, chapter 6, verse 13 and 14. This fellow never stops speaking against this holy, holy place and against the law, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs of Moses handed down to us. So as you can see, the first accusation is against the holy place, against the temple. Evidence that they provide is that they say, they heard him saying that, that Jesus said that he would destroy this temple. And speaking against the temple was a serious offense to the Jews. The Jerusalem temple was the focus of their religious life. It was a place where their sacrifices were offered, where poor, where the poor were taken care of, where the songs were sung and the law was taught, and more importantly, they believed that this was the place where people came to meet God, that God has designated, God had designated this one place for people to come and meet and encounter God, a place where God lived. It was a sacred place. And you know how important the temple is even now to the Jews, if you've ever been to Jerusalem. Of course, the second temple, this temple was destroyed in year 70, but later on, when Muslims uh, took over the, 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 uh, over Israel, they built a mosque on top of it, and that's why you see the Dome of the Rock, um, there. But there's that one place in Jerusalem still where you can actually go and see the temple wall. One, one, one remnant, and it's the Wailing Wall, it's the Western Wall. People go, they, it's considered a sacred place, people go and weep over it. They put their prayers over it, and they long for the reconstruction construction of this temple. It's still a sacred place for the Jews. So they accuse Stephen of speaking against the temple, against the destruction. Stephen taught that Jesus said that he would destroy it. Of course, this was mishearing of what Jesus actually said. But Stephen doesn't say that because he's about to give them a biblical theology of why temple actually is no longer necessary. And he does it through by going through all of the uh, Old Testament main characters of the Old Testament. And the key to this is to pay attention to the geography. He starts out with Abraham in chapter seven, verse two, verses two and uh, two through eight. And he says, "God, um, God of glory," in chapter seven, verse two. God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was in Mesopotamia. God of glory appeared in Mesopotamia, he says. And then Abraham, God called Abraham to go out. And he settled in Haran, and and he was with them in the land of Canaan. Next story is the story of Joseph. Um, Joseph, uh, Jacob and Joseph, and how God was with, God led uh, Jacob and his sons into Egypt. Egypt is repeated six times in that short passage. Joseph... uh, uh, Joseph, um, Jacob, uh, Joseph's father died in Egypt, and the family ended up eventually in Egypt, not just for a few years, but for 400 years. Next is Moses um, in seven seventeen through 36. Moses grew in Egypt, grew up in Egypt, but he had to run away to Midian. And we see that in verse 30, that God appeared to him in the burning bush in the Mount Sinai in the middle of the desert, and God calls that place holy place because he was there. And after Exodus, he was with them in the tabernacle 
throughout, through the wilderness, through their wandering in the wilderness. And finally, he ends with a temple um, uh, building of David and Solomon in 745 to 50. Solomon built the temple and he's praised, but he doesn't end this section with the praise of the temple and the beauty of the temple, how important the temple worship is. In fact, he ends up uh, quoting Isaiah 66 and almost to make the opposite point in verse 48. 748, the Most High does not live in a house, in houses made by human hands. Uh, Human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. God does not live in a house, is the conclusion. What he says really is that God does not need a temple. God is God of everywhere. Mesopotamia, Haran, Chaldea, Egypt, Canaan, Midian, Sinai, wilderness, and of Jerusalem, of Hong Kong, China, everywhere. You see, he made a case from the Bible that God doesn't live in a house. God doesn't need to be tied to Jerusalem or tied to the temple worship. In fact, the whole world is God's. It is a fact that Jesus stood in front of the temple and he said, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. And the temple, John uh, makes a correction, is actually, he's alluding to his own body. He is God's temple. Jesus is God's temple. In him dwells the glory of God. That, uh, uh, that uh, whoever has seen him, who, whoever meets him, has seen God, is worshiping God. No longer does worship of God is t- tied to one place. But wherever we worship God, in truth and in spirit, wherever we encounter Christ, we are worship, we're meeting God, we're worshiping God there. So he doesn't defend himself in this way. Um, sorry. Yeah, sorry. He doesn't defend himself in this way. He actually says, um, in fact, he says, you are right. Temp- the temple is no longer necessary. There is a sense in which I have spoken against the temple because Jesus is the true temple. All people everywhere can meet God through Jesus. That's his message. He takes that, he takes the opportunity not to defend himself, but to point to Christ. And the second accusation is against the law. Uh, sorry, I, um, a uh, second accusation against the law of Moses. He doesn't really defend himself there either, does he? What he does do is he turns the table around. He mentions the covenant of circumcision in chapter 7, verse 8. But later on in verse 51, he says, actually, but your hearts are not circumcised. He mentions, um, uh, he says in verse 39 that their ancestors didn't obey the law. And later on in verse 52, uh, 53, he says, you are not obeying the law. Stephen preached in verse 37 that Moses told him, told them of a Messiah that will come. But in verse 52, that when he came, you killed him. You killed Jesus. Once again, he doesn't defend himself, but he turns the table around and he says, you are guilty of not obeying the law. You are guilty of not obeying Moses who had prophesied of a Messiah that was, that was coming. Using the scripture, he proved, his, uh, he proved their guilt. 
And the point that I really want to make um, out of all this, I mean, there's a lot of richness there, and there are, I think, a lot of ways that we can uh, see uh, how, how it can be applied to us. And there is a lot of things about the temple and the worship of, uh, you know, building and all those things. But I, I think it's amazing that only last week we saw that Stephen was appointed as, uh, as a deacon to distribute food for the poor. That was just last week. He had this task of waiting on the table, and that's what he does. He, that's his primary role. But we see that he is a man of also great wonders and signs in 6.8. He's full of wisdom and he speaks to his oppositions in 10. He is a deacon, but we find that he's an extraordinary preacher. And he's also an extraordinary evangelist. I think there is a lesson here that in the end, we're all evangelists. Last week, we saw how we are all priests because of Christ. But we're also evangelists in Christ. We have our primary roles in the church or in out in the world. Maybe you serve in the PA team or music team or as a Kingdom Kids teacher, Solid Rock leader or whatever, links group leader. Or for that matter, you have a, your primary job in the world as a lawyer or teacher, professor, student, um, mothers, engineers, or whatever your job is. We all have our primary calling there in life and in church, but we must be faithful to those things, but we also are in charge with the responsibility of sharing the gospel, no matter where we are, no matter what our primary jobs are. Teaching the Bible isn't just for the professionals. It is for all Christians. So Stephen, the deacon, preached the Stephen who was in charge to, uh, to distribute food, he goes on preaching, he goes on teaching the Bible, he goes on pointing people to Christ. In a moment, um, it's not just Stephen, everyone, everyone preaches Christ. In a moment, we'll see how people are scattered all over Judea and Samaria, and it'll say that everyone, everyone went uh, uh, to Judea and Samaria and they preached the gospel. We're all evangelists. Because this task is too important to be left uh, to a few. And in order to do this, this is sort of the second thing that I want to say, that we really do need to study the Bible. We need to know the Bible better for all of us. Stephen knew what to say because he knew how the Old Testament pointed to Jesus to the New Testament, how the old temple pointed forward to Christ, what God's plan of salvation was, what God's promise to Abraham was, how it was fulfilled partially in the Old Testament, but how it would look forward to Jesus' first coming, and not just the first coming, but the second coming as well. We have to know our Bibles better if we are to preach the good news of Jesus to all those around us. If it is our responsibility all our response, all of, all of us, our responsibility to be mouthpieces of Jesus in our homes, in our workplaces, in our networks. We have to start learning the Bible. We have to read it. As we saw last week, we're all God's priests. So I know that it's a, uh, it's an application that is often said, but are we reading the Bible? Are we studying the Bible or are we leaving it to professionals? Are we ready to give an answer for the hope that we have? Or are we leaving it to others? Are we meeting up one-to-one with somebody else and saying, actually, I don't know Gospel of John very well, but could, could we meet together and, and study it together? Are we doing that? 
It doesn't have to be a class that we run in the church. It could be done. All of you have the tools, basic tools to do this, to meet together and to study the Bible. You can do it as a family. This is the first ingredient of the gospel growth, that we all become disciple makers. Not just a few, but all of us. The second ingredient of this kingdom growth is trusting that God is sovereign over all things. Because when we believe in that God is in control, whether things are good or when things go um, sh- uh, take, take a downturn, we can still boldly share the gospel. We will never be defeated. We'll share the gospel if we trust that, um, that God's will is always being done, even when things don't seem like it's happening. And I hope you saw once again a uh, little bit of, uh, heard a little bit of uh, the echoes of this uh, in Stephen's account of the Old Testament. Think about the characters that Stephen described. Abraham was called and he was promised this land. You know, he died without having any piece of land. Well, he bought a little piece of land for his wife. He was promised descendants as many as the stars in the sky and as the sand in the shore. He died with one son. Instead of sea of grandchildren, he died having one son. And you could, you could ask, well, how is God in control over that, over the promise? How is God's promise being fulfilled uh, in Abraham's life? His grandson Jacob and his 12 sons didn't inherit the land either. In fact, they ended up in Egypt um, at the end of Genesis, end of the, their story. And not just uh, in Egypt for a few years, they ended up in Egypt for 400 years. Much of it as slaves. You could ask, how was God in control? How was God fulfilling that promise that he made to Abraham? Moses got all the education that he needed in the, in, in the court of Pharaoh, but then he was kicked out. Just as he was being groomed, he was kicked out, and he wandered in the desert for 40 years. Once again, you could ask, how is God doing this? Why is God doing this? How is God fulfilling his promise? The temple was built by Solomon, David, uh, David and, and Solomon, and it was a magnificent, ma- magnificent temple, but it was destroyed by the ba- Babylonians. How is God fulfilling his promise? What Stephen saw in all that was that God eventually was, God was sovereign through all those, that they all pointed to Christ somehow. Abraham didn't have many sons in his lifetime, but actually his sons will include not just the Jews, but the Gentiles as well. It will include all all of us, that he will have many, many, many sons, uh, many children, including all of us here. Land of Canaan was just a symbol of the promised land. land. It's not tied to that land. He saw now that it's not just a piece of land, that actually the all of creation is God's land, God's promised land, that he will restore all of the earth um, uh, as his land. Exodus out of Egypt through Moses, that wasn't the highlight of God's salvation. And Stephen saw that, that it was a, it, it would pale in comparison to the great salvation that God had prepared in Jesus out of bondage of sin and Satan in Jesus Christ. Temple was destroyed and, uh, and rebuilt, um, but it wasn't the place of meeting God. Jesus was. Stephen saw this, and as he looks back, all those things that made it seem like it, they stood in God's way. It wasn't, God's will wasn't being realized. He was constantly being thrown off course, wasn't the case. 
They weren't what they seemed. God was realizing his perfect salvation plan. And we see that in our little passage in chapter 8 as well. Because in chapter 8, we're introduced to Saul, who will later on become Paul in verse 8, I'm sorry, chapter 7, uh, 58. He's watching over other people's coats. Um, He's in this corner on the right hand there, watching over people's coats um, there. In fact, something that Stephen said stirred Saul so much, not in a good way, that after Stephen's martyrdom, he started persecuting the church. We're told in 8.3, going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. And if the story ended there, you would think, what is, what is, how is God's will being done? But we know that that's not how it ends. We know that he is converted and becomes Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, the main evangelist who will dominate the rest of the story in the book of Acts. And we're told in chapter 8, verse 1, the persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. And if the story ended there, it would seem hopeless, though we know what happens. You know, uh, Jesus' promise in chapter 1, verse 8, when you will, receive, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes, and you will become my witnesses in, in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And that's what happens. The disciples get scattered all over Judea and Samaria, and wherever they went, this is chapter 8, verse 4. Those who had been scattered preach the word wherever they went. This persecution is the reason why people outside of Jerusalem started to hear of Jesus. People in Judea and Samaria heard the gospel for the first time because of this persecution. God was being, God's plan was being carried out even through this persecution. God's work cannot be stopped. I'm not sure um, what sort of circumstances you might be facing that seems to stand in God's way, God's plan of salvation. Maybe some of you feel like you've, um, there was a setback. This person that you're uh, trying to share the gospel has rejected it, and not just rejected it, but has turned sour and is act- actually really angry at you sharing the gospel. Maybe they've started to, maybe there are people who started to persecute you. Persecution uh, maybe alienate you from your social circles. And you think, how can I share the gospel here? It seems like the situation is against me, against the gospel. It seems impossible. But what we can take out of this is that really God is sovereign in all those situations as well. So don't be discouraged. Certainly, do not stop speaking of Jesus Christ, because God's plan cannot be stopped. We are in the thick of God's plan. Preach the gospel wherever you are, whatever circumstance that you're in, because God is realizing his plan even now in our situation. And God is the only one who knows the endings of these stories. Whatever you're going through now, God has an ending in mind, and he only knows. And he is in control over that situation. So be confident and continue to preach the gospel. And that's the second ingredient of gospel growth, that we are confident in God's plan, and we confidently go out, no matter what the oppositions are, to preach the gospel to the ends of the, of the earth. And the third, a third um, ingredient 
as we end, uh, is the, 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 the Christ-like, uh, Christ-like life that, uh, of the believers. Um, death, I think, often reveals our true colors, what we're all about. Some people who seemed really brave in life die a cowardly death. Some people who seem to be this meek and, and mild person lives a, uh, dies a very brave death. Well, as Stephen dies, his face shone brightly, 7.15. His face shone like Moses' Moses' face when he encountered God, but also like Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration as a person who is meeting God. And certainly there are many similarities of um, between Stephen and Christ, especially uh, in the way that they die. In both cases, uh, Jesus and Stephen were falsely accused by false witnesses. They are charged both of blasphemy. Uh, but also, they pray. Uh, Jesus prays twice. Uh, he says seven things, but he prays twice on the, on the cross. Uh, Jesus prays um, that uh, God would forgive those who are crucifying him. He prays, uh, Lord, receive, uh, uh, rece- I commit my uh, spirit. He, 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 he asks God to receive his spirit. And those are the two prayers that Stephen prays as well. Stephen prays in verse 59, forgive those people. And, and in verse 60, Lord, do not hold, I'm sorry, in verse 60, do not hold this sin against them. And he asks in verse uh, 59 that he, uh, God would, would receive his spirit. I don't think that is a coincidence. It's not a coincidence that their death is so remarkably similar. What's happening is that Stephen, who imitated Christ in his life, in his care for the poor, in his teaching, is consciously imitating Christ in his death. He knows how Christ died. And as he dies, he remembers Christ's death. And he repeats those lines because that, those lines are so part of his life. And he wants to imitate Christ even in his death. And as moving as it is to imitate Christ in, in, in death, it's perhaps for us even more important to imitate Christ in life. And the most difficult thing about imitating Christ in life is that it goes against the worldly wisdom. And, and the world will persecute us and alienate, alienate us if we continue to imitate Christ. The prevailing wisdom says that if you do good, you should publicize it. You should let people know how good you are. But Christ says, don't even let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. The prevailing wisdom says, look out for number one. Look out for yourself. Well, Christ says, put God first. Put others first. Prevailing wisdom says, get results. Results are what's really important. Christ says, follow me, even if it seems inefficient, even if it seems ineffective, follow me. World says, strike back. Christ says, turn the other cheek. And of course, that's what Stephen is doing. He follows Christ in life and in death. And the thing with imitating Christ is that it will not always end happily here on this side of the new creation. Stephen dies. Not just Stephen, many martyrs died. 
And I know that many of us will not get the promotion that we want, the lifestyle that we want, the house that we want, the husband or wife that we want, holiday that we want, children that we want, if we follow Christ. Sometimes following Christ means dying to ourselves and literally dying. But what we see in this text and book of Acts is that God's kingdom does not come in conventional ways. It does not come through violence. It does not come through selfishness, but rather through selflessness, through forgiveness, through peace, and through love. It comes by showing people what the kingdom of God is like by living that life here on earth, even if, if it goes against the prevailing wisdom, even if that means we die in the process of showing people what the kingdom of God is like, if, by, by showing people what kingdom um, ethic is like, even if it seems ineffective here on earth. But we do that. We can only do that if we trust that God is sovereign over all the world and all that's happening. I think these three um, points, I think, are really a good place to wrap up our series in the book of Acts for now. The church in transition, growth of God's kingdom. These are really the three, three main ingredients, and we've seen it again and again in chapters 1 through all the way to 7. It comes when we realize that through the power of the Holy Spirit, through what Christ has done and through the power of the Holy Spirit, we have all become God's workers, God's priests, that we are all people who are entrusted with the responsibility of teaching, serving, going out, and proclaiming the gospel of Christ. It comes when we trust that actually, even through all the ups and downs, even with the, all the oppositions and persecutions, when we trust that God is in control. And that gives us the confidence to go out and proclaim the gospel, even when things are tough. And finally, it comes when the believers become more and more Christ-like, Christ-like as we live like Christ and as we die like Christ. We'll have this immense privilege as we live like Christ of being part of God's unstoppable kingdom that will, that's expanding now and that will expand forever. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you once again for the early church and the example that it is. But Lord, we most of all thank you so much for Christ, we thank you for his life and his death and resurrection. We thank you that we can have access, direct access to you through Christ. And we thank you for the Holy Spirit that you poured out upon the believers, that we have God with us now. Lord, enable us to go out and be your workers. Help us to be faithful. Help us to get to know you through scripture. Help us to be faithful to Christ in life and in death, and help us to trust you in all circumstance. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.